Every 85 minutes, someone in the UK takes their own life. That's around 6,000 people who kill themselves every year. And yet suicide is one of our society's last taboos, often leaving those left behind with feelings of guilt or even anger and calling into question the value of life itself. I'm Alison Hilliard, and in this edition of Things Unseen, I'll be continuing our mental health season with a discussion of the uneasy relationship between faith and suicide. The Christian Church has had a bad press on suicide. For hundreds of years, people who took their own lives were buried not in churchyards, but at crossroads, sometimes with a stake driven through their body as a warning to others. Later, they were buried on the north side of graveyards, along with unbaptised infants and executed criminals. And the Church of England has only just changed its rule that forbade church funeral rites for those who'd taken their own lives, although most priests had been ignoring the rule anyway. So where does Christianity stand today on suicide? What do other faiths have to say on the subject? Why does faith seem to be of so little help once someone decides that they no longer want to live? And can faith and religious communities be of any help to the families left behind? Well, to help answer some of these questions with me in the studio are Canon Mike Parsons of the Church of England's Diocese of Gloucester, who's written a book on suicide in the church. Imam Ajmal Masrur, founder of the Barefoot Institute for Muslim Relationships and a trained counsellor. And Leila Hassan, who's a Muslim and a 22-year-old medical student who battles with depression and thoughts of suicide. And Leila's not her real name. Leila, you were diagnosed with depression as a teenager and you say you still suffer from suicidal tendencies. Can you tell us a little bit about what you go through? Depression is different for everyone and I've learned to cope by pretending everything's okay. So my family aren't as aware of how much I struggle. My friends aren't aware. Um, And every day I wake up not knowing what the day is going to be like, how I'm going to end up feeling. And my brain needs some time to boot up. And some days it's a really good day and other days it's a chore. If it's a really bad day, like a really, really bad day, it can go one of two ways. I can either be really numb, incredibly numb, just thinking I can't be bothered. I I just want this to end. I want to be okay. I want to be able to deal with my emotions, know what's going on, know why I feel like this, be able to connect with the world around me. Or it can be the other way where I'm full of so much pain incredible pain I don't know where it's come from I'm in tears and I want it to end I just want the pain to go away and I get irrational thoughts I get thoughts of how I just can't go on how it'd be nice to just sink into a deep sleep and never wake up how it'd be really nice to just no longer feel feel like I can't cope And I've been battling with it officially for more than five years now. And I know there are good days. I've had a remission where I was off medication for two years. So I know there are good days. But when I'm in that moment, I don't care that there's a good day because it's just going to come back. There might be a good day, but then there'll be a horrible day. And I don't want to live the rest of my life going up and down and having to struggle so much. 
And how does that sit alongside your faith? Because I know that you're uh, an observant Muslim. It's a difficult one because I come from a community which is very cultural. And when I was diagnosed, my parents didn't discuss it with me because they are uneducated immigrants and for them depression isn't a word they're aware of. Depression is a word they associate with someone who's in a psychiatric hospital, someone who's under a lot of pressure, someone who's possessed or someone, you know, they who's just completely irrational and they couldn't see how I can function and have a diagnosis of depression. So they never spoke to me about it. Um, and I think now they seem to think it's gone away, but it hasn't. I also tried speaking to other people and a lot of Muslims will turn around and say, you need to pray to God, you need to work on your faith, you need to connect with God. Um, there's ease with every difficulty. And they quote scripture and you just think, yes, I know that, but I feel like God hates me. I feel like God has rejected me. I feel like even if God is there for me, I'm the most sinful, the most horrible, the most dirtiest person alive. How can I turn to him? I'm going to burn in hellfire. Um, and you have these thoughts and you believe them very, very strongly. So when someone says you just need to pray, I think it's not as easy as praying. So that distanced me from God. But on the flip side, since I've grown older, since I've had my ups and downs and learnt to manage my depression, I'm slowly returning to faith because I find that there is relief and God is my sort of anchor. He gives me hope. Like there has to be a hope that there's a bigger picture, that I can overcome this. Or even if I struggle, that there's someone who's constant, there's a being who's constant and who'll love me regardless of how I feel about myself. Leila, thank you for sharing that with us. Can I turn to you, Ajmal? What would you be saying to Leila if she came to you with the thoughts that she has described? I would want to know Leila a bit more, her thoughts, her families. I would like to know her upbringing. Many of us have grown up having very high IQ, intelligence, and our families have nurtured that and cherished it, wanting us to become doctors, engineers, lawyers, so that we become high achievers in life. But unfortunately, many of our families have abysmally failed when it comes to nurturing our emotional intelligence. And Asian communities, from where I also belong, believe have failed in it quite miserably for many reasons. Economic reason, migration, unsettled lifestyle, duality in their identities, many factors have created that very, how do I say, contradictory emotional state. And it affects our children. I struggle sometimes with my own emotions. I was brought up in a boarding school, all boys, 400 of us in one boarding school. So we only knew about high-level intelligence. We only knew about how to fight, argue, but not nurture our emotions. And now forming relationship is difficult for me. Mike, can I bring you in here? How would you respond pastorally to someone in Leila's situation? So often the people who suffer from suicidal thoughts are often those who appear on the outside to be quite strong, quite extrovert, uh, bouncy, uh, one particular person that was the reason I got involved with this, it was horrifying to those of her acquaintances who weren't very close. Um, she took her own life. How could this be somebody with so much so much to give, so much um, personality? But let's set the record straight on what both Islam and Christianity have to say <clears throat> on the, the subject of suicide. Mike, what does the Bible have to say on suicide? The Bible says remarkably little on suicide. 
In fact, the New Testament says nothing at all. The Hebrew Scriptures have many instances of people who have taken their own life, actually which is often not condemned. But in Christian theology, going from St. Augustine and particularly through Thomas Aquinas, there is a consistent sort of set of teaching that taking your own life is wrong. And is that where the long-standing belief comes from, that, that suicide, to put it bluntly, is the sort of ultimate unforgivable sin? Oh, it's the unforgivable sin because you can't repent of it when you've killed yourself, you see. Uh, yes, that's exactly where it comes from. Aquinas' arguments that it's an offence against the person, it's an offence against society, and it's an offence against God. Now, I think all three of those actually can be challenged, not as much as to say actually suicide is good, because I think it isn't, but it's not as black and white as it might seem. Ajmal, what exactly does Islam say on suicide? There is a verse in the Quran where God says on the chapter 4, 29, the verse number, chapter called Chapter of Woman, that uh, nor kill or destroy yourselves, for surely God has been very merciful to you. There is another verse which says, if you take one life, it is as though you have taken the lives of the entire humanity. This is both taking life of others and yours. So that's pretty black and white. Prophet, peace be upon him, also said the same, that one should never commit suicide and those who do will unfortunately face the consequence. There are reasons for it. The reasons are very stark and quite black and white. Um, Life is a gift. And soul that is responsible for the body that functions is a breath of God. Life is not mine to take. It's given by somebody divine and therefore cherishing it, nurturing it is a responsibility. We may bring our physical body to an end by harming it, by committing suicide as we call it, but we have not killed the soul. The soul lives on. So the pain and the suffering that may have led to a person taking the life may not end because soul doesn't die. So what is the point of bringing this shell to an end? before its expiration date. Why not go through the struggles and see and seek help and support to overcome in order for you to enjoy the union between the body and the soul and the mind so that you can actually cherish life. I have a son who suffers from a genetic condition. I've devoted all my life to God's work. When we discovered that he was not well, I questioned my own faith, saying, why me, God? I've not given a day of my life without doing something for you. Why me? But I had my answers when I met a man who was saying goodbye to his daughter, who was dying from leukemia, and he was happy. And he was whistling out of joy, and I was crying because I was angry. I'll tell you, in Islam, it's quite simple. Life is a gift. Cherish it. So Islam says, don't end your life. Whatever difficulty you're going through, there surely is a solution. And what that solution is is not scripture necessarily, it's support and help, it's understanding, it's reaching out. Lele, what do you make of what's been said both from Mike and Ajmal there? As for what Ajmal said, what you've said is nothing new. I've heard that all the time, you know, life is something that is precious, that is a gift that you are given. And to that I say, I never asked for it. I don't want it. Yes, there is pain in the next world. If you believe in the next world, yes, I can go to hell. But that doesn't override the pain I feel right now. And that doesn't help me in the position I'm in. It doesn't make me want to live. Hearing all of that, it's good that you're so passionate and you cherish life. But it makes me feel even less worthy of God because I don't. I don't cherish my life. But I also feel that 
For me to cherish my life, I need to feel God's love. I don't need to be reminded what he's done for me. I don't need to be reminded about the next life. I just need to know that he won't judge me, he won't hate me, and he'll love me. Ashma? My understanding of God's love, I feel it every day. The fact that I breathe, the fact that I can talk, the fact that I've got children, I've got family, good or bad. A son who has got genetic condition, my father who suffers from acute dementia. Every challenge we have in life, I still feel God's love. So I'm wondering what you mean by God's love when you say you don't feel it, number one. And number two, I really want to know, and of course not now, but would love to know about your family background. How were you brought up? What kind of family did you have? Was that family environment conducive for your nurturing of your soul, for your spirit, for your emotions? God has created me and you, Leila, and everybody as autonomous human beings able to react and respond freely to him. To say that life is a gift from God is correct, but sometimes we're given gifts we don't want or feel we don't want. And I think from the point of view of God, with great sorrow and heartache, it is possible to look at one of those who he loves who doesn't want that gift at the time. Now, that I think that response is respected. Often, and in fact, Leila has said this earlier on, The response is not so much, I want to end my life, but I want the pain to stop. And sometimes the situation people find themselves in is it is less painful to end their life than to go on living. And that's terrible. And actually, what this is, is a crisis of hope within the community, sometimes, and certainly within that person. And I think that within the Christian church where I minister, we need to be able to build communities that express hope that can be expressed even in the darkest of times. Because Leila is not alone. There are many, many people like her in our communities who can't express what they think. Leila? I do not wish to talk about my family or my upbringing or my past, simply because I've done a lot of that in therapy. And I feel that sometimes we get stuck in the past that we can't move forward. I love my family and they have done a brilliant job of raising me. But things are difficult. Um, And the first part, what do I mean by God's love and how do I want to feel it? You are right, Ajmal. I realise that I project a lot. Therapy has taught me that I project a lot and God is the easiest thing to project onto. And I project all my internal feelings, everything I've been shaped by in this world onto God and everything in me becomes everything that I hate about God. And I realise that. But it's not a simple matter of being able to realise that. I need to feel. I need to be able to accept and love myself in order for me to feel that God can accept and love me. And I realise that, but it's different trying to make it happen. So, yes, it is a very complicated situation, a complicated feeling, and there's no right answer. Well, there isn't a single answer or a single step to resolve it. But it's not as easy as saying, God loves me. God created me, God's there for me, God forgives me, I need more. Can I go back to that point that you were making, Mike, that in a sense, if you like, this needs to be shifted away from the individual and onto what it says about the state of our society, a society where the pain of living for many people is just too great. What do you think it does say about this lack of hope when you mentioned the need for hope in our society? Well, we have a society, certainly in Western Europe and North America in the 21st century, where we appear to have every material need provided for us, and there's nothing to aspire to. Uh, Previous generations sometimes built their hope in what they hoped to be able to achieve for themselves, their family, as they improved themselves in life. 
it's difficult to see where that lies now. And I think certainly the Christian religion is a religion that is built in hope that there is life through death. One of the things which I found extremely helpful when I was, well, before I was writing my little book on this, there was the work of an American Presbyterian theologian called Alan Lewis, who wrote a book about what we call in the Christian church Holy Saturday, which is the day between Good Friday when Jesus dies and the Sunday when he rises. What has happened? Where are we at that point? And at that point, the church was completely destitute, alone, paralyzed with fear. Everything had been destroyed, or apparently so, yet God was still there. And even for the person in the deepest depression going into the grave, they are not alone. What do you think that means for somebody who might not be used to going to church or who might not be used to that Easter narrative of charting from Good Friday through to putting a new emphasis on Holy Saturday? Well, how we talk about this to other people is a question of how do you make the contact? Um, How do you get this message over that there is a message of hope? In this generation, I think this is the crucial task of the church. All the rest of it is irrelevant, really. You know, we are a people of hope, and we have to be that. And what would that mean in practical terms for somebody either wanting support or somebody wanting help, either who's wanting to take their own life or a family who's trying to come to terms with one of their loved ones doing that? I think in terms of people who might want to take their own life, ensuring that both church worship and various other groups offer the sort of support where somebody like Leela can actually say, you know, I've sometimes thought about ending my life, but I don't want to. Um, And not to recoil, shocked, or simply offer words of scripture. The same thing happens in the Christian tradition as in the, uh, the Muslim tradition as well. There's always worthy people who want to quote a bit of scripture at you. It doesn't help at all. It just actually makes it worse. But to offer practical support, to give you something to do, to think about something, to have a meal with somebody, to be able to spot times in somebody's life when they're likely to be more depressed than others. And we need to recognise that we are all flawed and damaged in some way and seek to provide help and support for everybody else. And and taking that a bit further, Ajmal, what might that mean, for example, in the Muslim community in terms of support that could be afforded not just to an individual but maybe to a family that's been left behind? For Muslims in many of the families where suicide may have happened or people are contemplating it. Unfortunately, there isn't any support network available. Again, it's frowned upon. It's ostracized. People are almost cut off from the mainstream society. The attitude of the community needs to be challenged, examined and reviewed in the light of the word that I began by saying that there is a verse in the Quran where God says, and he's been most merciful. The Arabic word, for mercy is rahma. Rahma actually roots from raham, which means mother's womb. God associates nurturing mother's womb with his mercy. And he uses that same terminology to define his own attribute. So merciful, more compassionate, more supportive environment is needed. So just tell me in practical terms then how you would like a faith community to support somebody like Layla or to support those who've been bereaved as a result of suicide. All the mosques should have counselling support services, befriender services. Unfortunately, with the infrastructure that we have within the Muslim community, finding confidential and neutral party is difficult. But we need to create that. We just can't think it's not going to happen. So my suggestion would be for the mosques to open up, to have more neutral, confidential support services, 
for clerics to have that training to be able to provide that first contact and signpost people to professionals. And I would say often the interference from the social infrastructure that we see dominating some of the communities, especially the Asians, we need to really unpack that because that's causing a lot of trouble. Leila, do you think practically that would be of any use to you or would, in your most vulnerable times, would some of the suggestions that have been made here be of any practical use to you? I always feel that I could have everything and everyone looking out for me or providing for me and I'd still be depressed. I don't think depression can be taken away, but I do believe it can be relieved. So if there was a space where I felt like I had a purpose or I felt like I belonged or I was accepted or I could approach, then yes, I believe that would help me when I was beginning to relapse to find some form of ease, to find someone to struggle with me and help me through. One thing I would have liked when I was diagnosed was to speak to my local imam, but I didn't know how to contact him. He was always in the mail section and I had to go through my father and that's just not ideal. And there is that whole concept of confidentiality. What would he then tell my dad that I told him? And also, I'm so busy judging myself thinking God already hates me. I feel that, you know, I fear that the imam would hate me in return. I suppose on the other hand, Leila, the other thing to say is that some people would say that actually religious faith protects against suicide or having a religious faith itself makes you less vulnerable to suicide? I think religion is very personal. For some people, it shapes every single moment in their life. For others, it's something they struggle with to make compatible with their life. So I don't think there's an easy answer to that one. But yes, it can be a source of comfort, a source of strength, but it can also be a source of pressure, a source of sin and not being good enough and hellfire. So it's very individualistic, I think. It's very difficult sometimes to know whether a religious believer is deflected from suicidal thoughts by their faith or not. Sometimes actually the faith makes it worse because you can see a different perspective to things and that, and that different perspective then judges you. You know, I shouldn't be feeling like this because God has made me. I'm in the image of God and how can I have these thoughts? I think it's all part of the problem that mental health is something that we have pushed to the sidelines and regarded as somehow dirty and disreputable and not to be talked about. If you had arthritis in your knee, you would have it dealt with and this wouldn't be a social stigma. I've actually just had a knee replacement a bit ago, so I'm talking from experience here. Um, Whereas depression, being on antidepressants, people will resist it because they think, I'm labelled as a failure. Human beings, our bodies, our minds, our emotions sometimes fail us. It's an illness and it needs to be treated as such. Ajmal, final word. There is a very powerful verse that always resonates with my thoughts, which reads, which means God created human being with weaknesses. The Arabic word, the Arabic word insan actually means a group of people who forget. So God has created a forgetful people with weakness. That's the literal meaning of this verse. So I'll forget and I'm weak. What can we expect from me? The pursuit of perfection is what's driving us to the points of suicide and other lots of issues that we talked about. As long as we do that, we will not come out of it. I believe we should stop pursuing perfection. We should have the wonderful journey, enjoy the beauty of imperfection. 
Thank you very much indeed. My thanks to my guests today, to Ajmal Masrur of the Barefoot Institute for Muslim Relationships, to Canon Mike Parsons of the Church of England's Diocese of Gloucester, and to medical student Leila Hassan. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this programme, please do take a look at the resources on our website. That's www.thingsonscene.co.uk. I'm Alison Hilliard, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for those who believe there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.